I find courtship stories to be quite fascinating. That's because no two courtship stories are ever quite the same. Every time I hear a couple tell their story, it's always a little bit different than anything I've heard before because every relationship is unique. One man describes his courtship to be love at first sight. I saw her, I knew she was the one, we met, we got married, just like that. Now, I'm not sure it was exactly that simple, and maybe his wife would like to add a little bit more detail, but that's the way he described it. Other courtships take a lot more time, and maybe that's your story. You and your spouse were not really that much alike. In fact, your differences kept you at a distance for a while, but then you started developing some areas of interest that you enjoyed together, and over the months and years, maybe even, you fell in love. And you began to realize that your differences can actually complement each other. And that when you intentionally allow your differences to become your strengths, you are much more balanced. <laughs> That's kind of the way it was with Sharon and I. Then there are others who say, I thought I really knew that person that I was getting married to, but I never really discovered who they were until after we were married. I came across a couple who illustrates this beautifully as they were describing their golden wedding anniversary, 50 years of marriage. And they had a big party for them because they were known to be the, one of the most harmonious couples in their circle of friends. And their lives together was a study in cooperation. But on their 50th wedding anniversary, uh, he was asked the question, what was the secret of your successful marriage? So the husband responded, I'll tell you how it all got started. It was on our honeymoon. We went to the Grand Canyon, and when we got there, we decided to ride the pack mules from the top of the canyon down the treacherous, narrow, winding trail that leads to the bottom. She rode her mule, and I rode mine. However, however, on the way down the steep winding trail, her mule stumbled and scared her. And she said with a firm voice as she leaned forward speaking into the ear of the mule, that's once. We rode on a little further into the heart of the canyon and that old mule went and stumbled a second time. Again, she leaned forward and she said a little bit more firmly, that's twice. We got about two-thirds down to the bottom of the canyon, and the meal went and stumbled a third time. And I suddenly remembered that I had married a woman from Texas. She reached into her purse, pulled out a revolver, and shot the meal, and he dropped dead in his tracks. I was shocked, and I said, that's a terrible thing to do. How could you do such a horrible thing to that poor meal? And she looked at me and said quietly but firmly, that's once. And he said, ever since then, we've had a harmonious marriage. Now I'm gonna suddenly change course and say that there's no courtship more intriguing, more fascinating than the one that we find recorded for us between Mary and Joseph of Nazareth. It is unique in every way. And we know some of the details, but there is so much about their lives that we know nothing about. We really don't know anything about Mary's family, about her extended family or Joseph's extended family. Uh, we don't know all the details regarding their lives and, and the community and how the community responded to everything that was going on. We are left with so many uh, details to fill in with our imagination. Matthew's gospel mentions a betrothal. And again, we're left to wonder, 
what in the world does that mean? We don't use that word today. When a couple dates uh, each other for a while, uh, they fall in love and, and he presents her with an engagement ring. And that's a promise of things to come, that they're going to get married. And sometimes the engagement doesn't even work out, but it's not a huge scandal if the engagement is broken. But a betrothal is something altogether different. It is unique. And I thought it would be important for me to just explain what that was, because it says in Matthew 1.18 that the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be pregnant with the Holy, uh, by the Holy Spirit. Let me explain how a betrothal worked. Often the couple uh, in Jewish culture in the New Testament were engaged when they were still children. <laughs> they may have been at day school together at the synagogue and the parents got together and saw that they played together and, and the parents would come to an agreement because back then it was the parents who arranged the marriage. Sometimes they used a matchmaker, but not always. And they would come to an agreement that their kids would get married when they get older. And then as time went by and they entered their teen years, the parents would get together and work out what were called terms of agreement regarding the upcoming marriage, which would include, of course, a dowry, so that there would be uh, funds available for the wife in case her husband died prematurely. So about a year before the wedding was to take place, the families would go to the synagogue, they would meet with the rabbi, regarding their mutual agreement uh, to be betrothed to each other. And the terms of agreement would be entered into the public record of the synagogue. And from that time on, they were betrothed to each other and they would be called husband and wife, even though they had not begun to live together as husband and wife. Even though their marriage had not yet been consummated. It's also important to know that in the betrothal, if the wife was unfaithful to her husband during the year of betrothal, or vice versa, he would have the option of making a public declaration where witnesses would actually stand alongside of him and she would be publicly shamed. And according to Old Testament law, she could even be publicly stoned. That's how serious the betrothal was. Now, it's interesting to me how the Christmas story revolves primarily around Mary. How many times has Joseph talked about in the Christmas story? How about the Christmas carols? It's all about Mary. Mary, did you know? What about Joseph? Joseph, did you know? <laughs> or what child is this who's laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? Didn't the child lay to rest on Joseph's lap as well? But it's really all about Mary. Now, admittedly, Joseph had nothing whatsoever to do with the conception of the child. But I would submit to you that he was an integral part of the story, as we're going to see this morning. But it's almost like he's an afterthought. And based upon the tradition of the church, it's almost like, who cares about Joseph? But let me answer with only two words. God cares. In fact, he cares so much that in Matthew's gospel, God preserves for us the genealogy of Joseph 
so that it traces the ancestral fathers of Joseph. And that's absolutely essential. Because for Jesus to be a legitimate Messiah, Joseph had to be of the ancestry of Abraham. But not only the ancestry of Abraham, but also the ancestry of Jesse, of whom was born David, who was the king. And the prophecies that Jesus would fulfill uh, the lineage of David were absolutely essential for him to be Messiah. And Matthew has that for us. And then we read in Matthew 1.16 these very important words in the genealogy. Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. See those words, by whom? It's very important for us to understand that there's a grammatical construction in the Greek that God wants us to know about when it comes to the conception of the Messiah. Joseph was not in the picture of the conception. It was Mary through whom the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus, was conceived. Because there's a tiny construction in the Greek that emphasizes the virginity of Mary. The by whom is in the feminine singular. The Greek language is very precise, and it has feminine and masculine. And when it says Joseph was the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, it's feminine singular, meaning Joseph had nothing to do with it. That tiny, tiny construction in the Greek emphasizes the virginity of Mary. She was a Parthenos from whom the Messiah was conceived. Parthenos is a Greek word for a woman who has never, ever known a man intimately. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, this is a fulfillment of the prophecy that was given 700 years earlier. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and she will call him Emmanuel, a virgin, a Parthenos. Now, one of the fascinating parts about this whole story is that we as the reader know that the characters in the know things that the characters in the story do not know. I don't know if you read a lot of books, but I always find it intriguing when you're reading the book and you know things that the characters in the book know nothing about, and they're trying to figure it out. And that's part of this Christmas story. Joseph had no idea what was going on. And if you don't understand that, if you don't think about that, much of the fascination of this story is lost. Joseph is now a young man probably in his late teens, a red-blooded male who's very much in love with Mary. He has been looking forward to her becoming his wife and living together for a long time. When they can know each other intimately, he's very excited about his wedding day that's coming up. Meanwhile, he's working alongside his father as a builder, anticipating his future with a woman that he has been betrothed to. Meanwhile, Mary is a young teenager, probably 14 or 15 years of age, going about her daily tasks, also waiting with anticipation for the wedding day to come, when all of a sudden she is stopped in her tracks and she receives a divine visitation from Gabriel, the angel of the Lord, who says, guess what, Mary? 
you have found favor with God. In fact, we read about it in Luke's gospel. Uh, the angel appears to Mary and it says, uh, Mary is very perplexed at what the angel says and she's pondering what kind of greeting is this? And the angel says to her, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and will give birth to a son and you shall give him the name Jesus. And he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high God. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. There it is. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will never have an end. But Mary says to the angel, how is this ever going to be? I'm a virgin. The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and the power of the Most High is going to overshadow you. And for this reason, also, the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. Isn't that amazing? And Mary said, behold, the Lord's bondservant, may it be done to me according to your word. And then the angel departed from her. Now understand that all of this is known to Mary, but Joseph, he's in the dark. He doesn't know any of it. And that's important for us to understand again as we come to the Christmas story. If we're going to appreciate what Joseph is going through, we have to understand that he doesn't know what's going on. Let me put it this way, especially if you're a guy. You're head over heels in love with this woman that you are going to marry and spend the rest of your life with. And one of the things that has drawn you to her is her integrity and her purity. But you know that you have never touched her intimately. You have never violated that part of her body. You are saving all of that for marriage. And out of the blue, one day she comes to you and says, hey, Joseph, guess what? I'm pregnant. And you can understand Joseph's reaction. What do you mean you're pregnant? Who's the father? It certainly isn't me. And then she says, Joseph, it's a God thing. Now put yourself in Joseph's sandals for a minute. Uh, Mary, you're telling me that God made you pregnant? Remember, Joseph has never read Matthew 1. He's never read Luke 1. No one has come and whispered in his ear. By the way, what she says is absolutely true, Joseph. Can you imagine Joseph going home and telling his family and friends what Mary told him? And I can imagine their advice to him was, Joseph, get rid of her as quick as you can because you don't want to spend the rest of your life with a woman that you can't trust to be faithful. But here's another twist to this whole story that maybe you haven't thought about. According to Luke's gospel, immediately after Gabriel had given Mary this announcement, what does she do? She heads some 80 miles south to visit her cousin Elizabeth. <laughs> All the way down in Judea. Which brings me to a very interesting book entitled Mary. What does the Bible say about her? Written by a pastor whose name is Douglas Conley. And he helps us put the story together with a little bit of imagination. He writes, perhaps this is how the scene unfolded. Shortly after Mary's return from her visit with Elizabeth, so he's assuming that Mary had not told Joseph she was pregnant until after she had visited Elizabeth in Judea. 
And this only adds to the intrigue because Joseph's question would have been, Mary, what happened when you were in Judea? What were you up to? Who is this man that got you pregnant? Conley continues to write, Upon her return to Nazareth, she met with Joseph, perhaps in the garden of her parents' home, and she told Joseph that she was with child. And she told him not so much with tears of shame, but with a quiet confidence. That's also interesting. How could she speak with quiet confidence and no shame about being pregnant, knowing that Joseph had absolutely nothing to do with it? At first, Joseph could not believe what he was hearing. He ever even entertained the thought that perhaps Mary was joking with him, but he knew that Mary would never joke about such a thing in a coarse way. What she said must be true. She was with child. And Joseph's first question was the one that any man would ask in that situation. Who's the father? Joseph knew that he wasn't the father because he had never touched her intimately. His relationship with Mary had been carried out in full view of her family and the close community that surrounded them. But it was now obvious to Joseph that Mary was not the person that he thought she was. She was not the person that he had been attracted to because of her devotion to God and her humble integrity. Because now in this brief conversation, Joseph discovered that his perception of who Mary was was absolutely shattered. And now his life was in shambles. Just a few more words from Conley's book. When Joseph asked her who the father was, Mary responded that it was an angel of God who came to visit her and told her that she would have a miraculous conception through the power of the Holy Spirit and that the son that she would bear would be the Messiah, the son of the almighty God himself. And she said it also calmly and with confidence. But how could Joseph ever believe a story like that? And so he left his encounter with Mary utterly devastated and went back to his home in utter despair. And he wrestled for hours. How would he respond? And divorce seemed to be his only option. Local opinion of the small Jewish community in Nazareth would be harsh. And in light of the evidence, most people would tell him to openly divorce her in public condemnation before the community of the synagogue. That, of course, would bring Mary great shame and reproach, or even worse, because according to the Old Testament, as an adulteress, she could be stoned. So Mary, Joseph was faced with this huge dilemma. What do I do? And we pick up the story in Matthew 1.19. And so her husband, Joseph, notice it calls him her husband, even though they were only betrothed at that point. And her husband, Joseph, since he was a righteous man, he did not want to disgrace her in a public way. So he planned to put her away secretly. He planned to end the marriage, but not to make a public disgrace of her. And then it goes on to say in verse 20, but when he had thought this over, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will give birth to a son, and you shall call him Jesus 
for he will save his people from their sins. Now, I want you to notice Joseph's response. And remember, the only thing that he had to go on was this angelic visit and what Mary had told him. So what did he do? And Joseph awoke from his dream and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And he took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he named him Jesus. What an incredible response from Joseph. This man who very little is said about, even today turns out to be one of the heroes in the Christmas story. God tells him what to do through the visitation from the angel and it confirms exactly what Mary had told him. So what does he do? As far as we know, there's no more struggle. Immediately, Joseph contacts Mary and her family. They make arrangements to go to the synagogue to meet the rabbi. They end the betrothal prematurely and they begin their lives together fully as husband and wife. Although it says, notice Matthew's very clearly to say, but he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to this son. Mary, probably by this time, is she could be six months pregnant with child. Can you imagine the scandal in the small community of Nazareth? We're told that Nazareth was a community of about 300 people at the time. Everybody knew everything about everybody else. And here Mary is with child. Can you imagine what people were saying? And then as Mary is about to come to her ninth month, there's an edict that come down, comes down from Caesar Augustus, according to Luke's gospel. He needed more money for taxation, so he ordered a census to be taken where people would have to go back to their town of origin. So Joseph and Mary, at least Joseph, is required to go back to his hometown, which is, of course, Bethlehem. <laughs> Mary, I don't know if she had to go or not, but she probably wanted to get out of Nazareth, so she said, Joseph, can I go with you? It's amazing to me that this Caesar Augustus, who claimed, he was the first Caesar who claimed divinity. He claimed to be God himself, <laughs> but he was nothing more than a pawn in the hands of Almighty God. Because God had to get Joseph back to Bethlehem because the prophet Micah had foretold it in Micah 5 too. He had said, but you, Bethlehem, even though you are least of the towns of Judah, out of you will come one who will be ruler of my people whose origin is from eternity past, literally in the Hebrew. <laughs> Seven eight years before Jesus was born, it was prophesied, it was ordained that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. So God used Caesar Augustus to get him there. But you can imagine what the people in Nazareth were saying. <laughs> I grew up in a rural community, and I know how fast gossip spreads. And it's amazing to me how what is not true begins as rumor. And before long, the rumor sounds convincing. And in time, people begin to think the rumor is truth when it's the furthest thing from the truth. And you can imagine the rumors that spread about Mary and who the father was that this was an 
illegitimate child. In fact, in John's gospel, the religious leaders in a debate with Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 41, they say that we are not illegitimate children, implied like you, Jesus. And a few verses later in verse 48, the people called Jesus the, a Samaritan devil who's possessed by a demon. It's a racial slur. But many people think that the implication is that, Jesus, you're a Samaritan because your mother Mary had an illicit affair with a despised Samaritan. Just think of Joseph's position. Remember, he's not the father, and yet he receives all the public scorn that Mary receives. But he continues to be faithful to God's plan. He hears what he's supposed to do from the angelic visit, and as far as we know, he never budges. He fulfills the role that God has for him, and he keeps Mary a virgin until the Savior is born. <laughs> Can you imagine what Joseph's family said? Can you imagine what Mary's family and friends were saying? They may have been wonderful people who were thankful that God had chosen their daughter to be the bearer of the Messiah, but on the other hand, I can imagine there was a lot of turmoil. And maybe that's why they took off for Bethlehem as soon as they could, just to get out of there. Let me pause and conclude today with a few practical lessons that I think come out of this story. I thought about this a long time, and I, I want to make this as practical as I can. So here are some possibilities. It's possible that right now you are facing some life-altering decisions. And those decisions call for sacrifice, just like they did with Joseph. Yeah, the details may be different, but the question is, should you follow God's way, or should you go your own way? Christianity Today, a magazine I subscribed to in the December issue that just came to my house this week, has an article about Joseph entitled, The Resilient Faith of Joseph. It's written by a pastor. Listen to what he writes. Joseph was able to guide his family well because he was open to God's spirit and leading in a way that defied legalism. Joseph's tender heart to God prepared him for the unexpected. And then he writes this, in cultures that are predominantly patriarchal, men are usually expected to provide for their families and it's often with a good dose of emotional detachment from their wives. The result is they can often expect that their plans to be the plans that direct their families. Heads of families can be rigid and resist unconventional behavior. But Joseph wasn't like that at all. We can clearly see that in his treatment of Mary, Joseph understood what would happen to a, a girl who was accused of adultery. And even though he could legally had every right to denounce Mary. Joseph did not do that. Joseph was willing to go with God's plan. There's a second thing that we can learn from Joseph's response. Right now, you may be facing the brunt of other people's criticism, even though you've been doing what you thought to be right. But you're not able to convince other people that it is right. I imagine Joseph was in that situation. The article in Christianity Today goes on to say that we see that Joseph isn't some grumpy, emasculated husband 
of the Christmas legend. Even before he received God's message about Jesus, Joseph demonstrated his love and compassion to Mary and his commitment to protect her dignitary, her dignity, which overpowered any legalism. Joseph's behavior betrays genuine masculinity in Bible-certified righteousness. I like that. And then he says this, such a positive response by Joseph to such a difficult and risky circumstance would have been impossible in a spiritually dull legalistic mind. A legalistic man might have quickly dismissed the angel's message as some hallucination. as it seemed to contradict everything he, that he knew about the law. But Joseph's spirituality was of the kind that he was able to value the will of the lawgiver more than the law itself. I like that. He was able to value the will of the lawgiver more than the law itself. And so no matter what the public opinion was, Joseph was willing to follow in God's way. Here's a third lesson. You may be forced to stand alone and to be virtually unforgotten as someone else is magnified and you are reduced to insignificance. Let's face it, having looked at the Christmas story of the two, it is Mary who is the recipient of the supernatural conception. It is Mary who goes through the pregnancy and ultimately gives birth to the Messiah. And through all this, Joseph, what is he? he he's an onlooker, a loyal onlooker to be sure, but he really had nothing to do with the miracle. It's Mary who wrote the Magnificent, not Joseph. My wife has been watching The Crown. Some of you have watched that, I'm sure, on Netflix. I've seen excerpts of it. But, you know, the thing that I notice every time I watch The Crown is that Prince Philip is always in the background. It's always the queen who's the center of attention. It's the queen who's in the forefront. It's always Prince Philip who's walking a few steps behind her. Why? Because she's the queen. And he will never be almost the king. And that's why he's always a few steps behind her. Yes, he is her husband. Yes, they are married. Yes, they do life together. But she's always the one in the forefront. She's always the one in the spotlight. <laughs> it's the same with Joseph. Maybe that's the way you're feeling. I don't know your situation, but perhaps your significance has been reduced from the role that you once aspired to. Maybe you were the one who once owned the business, but through a series of circumstances, your role has been reduced and now someone else has taken over. My question to you, are you willing to step gracefully aside and accept a reduced role? Sometimes we're asked to do that. If you follow the story of Barnabas and Saul in the book of Acts, it was always Barnabas first and then Saul. But then something happened. On their first missionary journey, the orders change, and it's now Paul, who was formerly Saul, and Barnabas. It's always Paul now who's in the forefront. Barnabas was forced to take a secondary role. And that's what Jesus did. He gave up his divine attributes and became one of us. And as his servants, sometimes we need to do that. And then my fourth and final application, <laughs> as we think of Joseph's response, 
Your new place of involvement may be caring for someone who's in need. To literally humble yourself to step into the role of a servant and to see it as a privilege that God would ask you to fulfill that role, even as he asked Joseph. I believe that Joseph was in a, a, an enormous emotional support for his wife, Mary. I believe that often he just put his arm around her and reassured her. I can just imagine that long trek that they, they went on from Nazareth to Bethlehem. In the difficulty of that journey and how he supported her through it. There are times in each of our lives when the Lord leads us to follow through in an assignment that we wouldn't have chosen for ourselves, but God calls us to do it. Perhaps it's something that others will never understand and won't even affirm. They say you're too important for that. Your gifts are not being used as uh, they should be. It defies logic. It may defy common sense in the opinion of others, but it's the right thing to do. And you know who I, I'm talking to. <laughs> we had Sharon's mom live for us for, uh, down in Niagara at, at a nursing home for six years. Sharon chose to bring her here so that she could spend more time with her. And Sharon did that. She would go visit her a couple times a week. <laughs> she would phone her almost every day. She would bring her to church services. She saw that is something God had called her to do. And then when she passed away this past this, uh, January of COVID, Sharon was able to say, I'm so glad that I served my mom in the years that I had an opportunity to do that. And I believe that was Joseph's response. He was now the stepfather of this remarkable son who's Messiah. He's now the husband of Mary, the one who will always be remembered in the Christmas story but he was right there by her side as they raised this miracle child into adulthood. A man by the name of John Oxenham puts it so well when he wrote this piece entitled God's Handwriting. Listen to what he writes. God writes in characters too grand for our short sight to ever understand. We catch but broken strokes, and we try to fathom all the mysteries of withered hopes of life, of death, of endless wars the useless strife, but there with larger, clearer sight, we see this, that God's way was right. Friends, you and I are here to fulfill God's way, to go in God's direction. It isn't all about us. And if we learn that by the time we're placed into our burial sites, we will have reached true maturity. But I have to say, there are many who never get that message. It's not about you in this life. It's not about me. It is not our script that we are to follow because ultimately God is in charge. And if we are truly his people, he is always leading us by his spirit so that his ultimate purpose would be accomplished. Lord God, thank you for the Christmas story. Thank you for Joseph's response. Thank you that we too are called to be your servants. And as we do that, we bring glory to your name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.